Good evening. We're in Zechariah chapter 8 this evening. The sermon is on the, the whole chapter, but let's read just here at the beginning, verses 1 to 8 together. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father, we approach you humbly, and as the song we just sang, let us ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Help us to see you afresh. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Speak truth through me, your servant. And I pray that you build us up, this church. Build us up in love and unity, knowledge and discernment. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are in Zechariah 8. And there's there's a lot in this in this chapter, um, and so uh, you have to make some choices. And the good good thing about the book of Zechariah is that there is repetition. And so what we have in Zechariah is you have some themes that come up again and then again and then again. And what we have in Zechariah eight is some of these things we've already heard before, but what we have. He's going to add to it a little bit. There's going to be a little bit of nuance. He's going to advance his themes, if you will. So we're going to get a little bit more today, but you're going to hear some things you've already heard. And so far, out of everything we've heard in Zechariah, this is perhaps the best summary chapter that we have yet. So if you're just joining us, if you haven't heard anything yet, this is a good week to come because Zechariah 8 really does summarize so many of the themes, and I think perhaps better than any of them. Another note before beginning, at the end of this chapter, you have basically the end of a major section of Zechariah. So chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way to 14, it's really a different sort of book. The approach is different. The themes are a little bit different. Um, So what we have in 1 to 8 is really a consistent thing. The next several chapters take place decades later. So it really turns into almost a different, different sort of book. Um, 
another bit of background. You may have heard this as I was reading through. There are ten, I counted ten at the beginning, thus says the Lord, or thus saith the Lord. So think about that. It's one chapter, and you have ten of those. Just think for a moment that you're hearing this from the words of Zechariah. He's announcing it to people. Or if you're reading it, same thing. Thus says the Lord. And then you're given these truths, or you're given these commands. And then he repeats himself. Thus says the Lord. And then you're given truths, you're given these statements. Thus says the Ten times he does that. And what is the effect that that would have on the first audience? What's the effect it has on us? Remember the theme, one of the great themes of this book is one of encouragement. God is encouraging his people. I think one effect would be that if he's repeating, thus says the Lord, that often, the prophet's really saying, hey, these aren't my words. This is God's word to you. It's also kind of hammering. This is encouragement. This is really, really, really going to happen. And he says it over and over again. If you think about it, he could have just said it once at the beginning of the chapter. And then we could have just had a whole chapter. But instead, there's a break. And again, and again, and again, there's emphasis. This is going to happen. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Another note. If you look at verse 3, briefly, the translation here has to do with when. One of the interesting things about this book is, is when do these things take place? When are we going to stop our fast? When are we going to start our feasts? It's one of the questions that we'll get to later in the chapter. The New King James says, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of her. It's a key verse. The ESV puts it like this. I will dwell. I'm sorry. ESV says it like this. I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So that's interesting language, and I think that's right. It's both past and future. God has returned to Zion, yet he will return to Zion. So the question we have is, well, which is it? Has he returned or will he return? So note, and as we move forward, in a sense, God has returned to Jerusalem. His people were in exile, they were in Babylon, and God has brought them back and the temple has begun to be um, rebuilt. So he has returned. He's brought his people back from exile. And yet much of this book is future. Even the return of God himself. It's both past and future. So keep that. We've got to hold that tension in mind. Okay, so looking at verses one to three. I'm going to group these together, verses um, 1 to 7. We're going to have our first heading, and this will be that God returns to Jerusalem. It's our first heading. God returns to Jerusalem. It says this, God is zealous for Zion. I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous. The ESV says this, I am jealous with great wrath. So God is returning, and he very much cares for his people. He's doubling down on this, as I've liked to have said in this book. He's repeating himself. He very much cares for his people, and with great energy. Think about that translation. With great wrath, I'm returning to Jerusalem. God is like a jealous husband. He really wants to be betrothed to his people. God also gives three new names for Zion. Take note of that. 
These are new names. He will call them the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. This is similar to what we see in Isaiah chapter one. We see there that after God cleans his people, he says to them, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So when God dwells among his people, reality changes for that people. Such people are given a new identity and thus a new name. So the nations previously called Israel names. They derided Israel. They wagged their finger over Israel. Israel was the top dog, but no more. They were destroyed. Their temple, their city walls, they were destroyed and they were exiled to a foreign land. Israel sinned great sins and brought punishment upon themselves. And God allowed the foreign nations to trample them. I've made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. Israel was mocked. Their name was defiled. Deuteronomy 28 says this. You shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So this is a curse. If you sin, God's going to exile you, and your name will be a proverb. It will be a byword. They're called names. We learn this lesson early in life, don't we? Perhaps in school, you've met a bully. We learn this as a school children. Sometimes it's done in good fun, don't get me wrong. But often bullies will give others new names in order to make fun of them. They want you to be known for your flaws so that they can laugh at you. And be Lord over you. And that's what the nations were doing to Israel. Israel is no longer great. And they called them a horror, a byword, a proverb. They laughed at them. But no more will that be the case. For God will dwell among them. And he will give them a new name, the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Think about this, believer. You too are given a new name. You were a sinner, now you're a saint. You were a child of Satan, believe it or not. You were a child of Satan, now you're a child of God. You were an enemy of God, now you are a friend of God. We have new names too. This is not just for Israel, it's for us. We are holy, we're sanctified, we're beloved. That's one of our names in Scripture. You are beloved. Before, we were thieves, drunkards, revilers. Those are your old names, now you have... New names. And above all, we have not our own name, but God's name on us. You see that in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus will write on him the name of my God. But God's return to Jerusalem does more than just affect a name change. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. The streets are full. Old women and old men sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand. Because of great age, the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. This is life and vitality. My parents recently um, came to church here two or three weeks ago. And one of the things they noted, as many visitors note, is like, look at all the children you guys got. There are a lot of kids here, and it's full of life, isn't it? It's a blessing to have that many kids. I think that's Zechariah's point. The streets are going to be full of boys and girls playing. When you see that, it's not a war-torn country, is it? 
There's peace. There's prosperity. There's good things going on. But consider also, as one commentator has noted, consider also that there are old men and old women. That's a good sign, too. If there are old men and old women in the streets, think about what that means. They're there. They weren't killed in war. Previous generations lost many, many people to wars, to famines, to slavery. If there's old men and old women in your streets, that's a sign of God's continued blessing upon you. And I'll pay close attention to this next verse, this is verse 6. This here is where I think the, the text takes a bit of an interesting, maybe unexpected sort of turn. So note closely, verse 6 says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord? Will it also be marvelous in my eyes? That word marvelous has more than one meaning. That's what I want you to take note of. And it's vital to take note of this word. God's asking a question. I think it's a rhetorical question. And it has the same root as a word used in God's response to Sarah. Remember Sarah? Abraham is going to bless Sarah with a child. And what does Sarah do? She laughs. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Notice God's response. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? There's the word. Too hard or too difficult can be translated marvelous, wonderful. Is anything too marvelous for the world, for the for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for God? That's the question. Verse six. Let me restate it now with this in mind. Is it too difficult in the eyes of the remnant of this people? So God's asking them a question. God's going to bring this blessing. And then he asks them a question. Do you think this is too difficult for me? Do you think this is too wonderful, too marvelous? Do you think this is too good to be true? Why does God ask that? Nothing's too difficult for God, so why does he ask? A few weeks ago, we were in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we see that God, through his prophet, asked the people a series of these sorts of questions. And I think this is similar. The objective is the same. God wants his people to examine their hearts. He's getting ready to give them a wonderful blessing. Do you believe this is going to happen? He wants them to truly believe his promises. He doesn't want them to laugh like Sarah laughed. He wants true worship. He does not want half-hearted worship, as we spoke about a few weeks ago. And God will see to it that his people will worship him from the heart. This is what the next verses are about. Look now at verses 7 and 8. He will gather those that are scattered to the east and to the west, and he will bring his people so that they may worship him in truth and righteousness. Take note of that word, in truth and righteousness. This phrase is the same phrase that's used to describe David. 
David was a sinful man just like the rest of us, but something peculiar about David is written and repeated in the scriptures. David was unlike other people. He was especially unlike other kings, even Israelite kings, because David was a man. You know the quote. David was a man after God's own heart. That's what God delights in. That's what God wants. As one scholar has noted, 1 Kings 3.6 matches the language in Zechariah 8.8. So listen to this description of David. Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and in righteousness. That's how David's described. Truth and in righteousness. David was a man after God's own heart. So let's recap where we've been in these first eight verses briefly. God will return to Jerusalem. He will give them a new name and renewed life. And God will gather his people and turn them into people who worship from the heart. God will do these things. And lurking sort of in the background is the question, can God really do this? Is he really going to do this? So more encouragement's needed. So look with me now at verses 9 to 13. In 9 to 13, God is going to tell them explicitly what he wants them to do. God is going to return. He's going to bless them. And now he's going to give them some commands. So this is our second heading. And our second heading is this. Obey God from the heart. Short and simple. Second heading. Obey God from the heart. Verse 9, take note of the commands that you hear as I read this. What are the commands? God's going to bless them. Now he's going to command them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who, who have been hearing in these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be rebuilt. Let your hands be strong. That's the command. Why? That the temple might be rebuilt. God will bless his people. But that does not mean that they should sit back lazily and watch God work. This is a command to them. Let your hands be strong or make your hands strong. You have to complete the temple. We read a few chapters ago that Zerubbabel would complete the temple. So we know the temple would be completed soon. But they have to get after it. They must work. The book of Haggai sheds light on this. Haggai is another minor prophet written around the same time as Zechariah. And there are a number of overlapping features between Haggai and Zechariah. The themes in the books are different, uh, but the time in which the books take place is, is really close to one another. So let's look at Haggai for a moment. It's the book that immediately precedes Zechariah. So if you're in Zechariah, just go back one book and you'll find Haggai. Let's look at chapter 1. We'll look at a few verses. Haggai chapter 1. In Zechariah 7, we read, in, in Zechariah, it takes place in the fourth year of Darius. That's the context of Zechariah. Notice, in Haggai, it's the second year of Darius. So these are really just about the same time. Let's look at verse 4. So they're, they're really the same thing is going on. God wants them to rebuild the temple. 
Haggai, though, is going to hammer on some things that we don't see in Zechariah as much. Verse 4, God says this. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, in this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. So in Haggai, they were building their own houses. They were not building the temple. And in Haggai, God gives them a message. You're living in paneled houses? Build the temple! It's rebuke. In Zechariah, we don't have such a strong rebuke, but we have a command. And that's the command we read. Make your hands strong. Do the work. In verses 10 to 12, God speaks even more about the favor he will show his people. And he's just laying on blessings. Okay, so we're past the command now. We'll we'll get to some more commands in a moment. But verses 10 to 12, he's just going to layer on some more blessings. Their economy gets better, if you take note of that. Their seeds, their farmlands, their vineyards, all of these things will prosper. The temple will prosper, and now their farmland, their, their economy will prosper. And then verse 13. And it shall come to pass that just as you are a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Why must their hands be strong? It's connected to two things. They need to make their hands strong so that they can build the temple. And they need to make their hands strong so that they will be a blessing. We'll pick up on that theme towards the end of the chapter. Israel was once a curse among the nations. And as the ESV said, they were a byword of cursing. It's like Israel was a cuss word in the mouth of the nations. But God will make them a blessing. They will no longer be a cuss word, as we mentioned before. But their name will be pleasant. When when the nations hear Israel... It will be cause for rejoicing. Make your hands strong. Here's the thrust of it. Make your hands strong so that you will be a blessing to the nations. All right, continuing on, let's look at verses 14 to 17. This is the same heading. Obey God from the heart. Same heading. Now, though, obey God from the heart is going to look differently. Not talking about the hands. We're talking about obedience, executing justice. Verse 14, I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again, in these days, I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. That's one command. These are the things you shall do. And here's a series of commands. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice and peace. And let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Those are the series of 
commands. First thing that we see there is that the Israelite forefathers, many of them, many a times and in many ways, they were sinning. So the first thing God says is that your fathers, this is verse 14, your fathers provoked me to wrath. I think the implication underneath this is don't provoke me to wrath. We can read any of the Old Testament historical books to get an account of these various things. Our brother Jesse this morning demonstrated some of these things in Hosea. But God here says he's determined to do good to Jerusalem. His, their fathers provoked him to wrath. God's going to turn. He's going to bless them. They do not have to pay for their father's sins. Isn't that interesting? Take note of that. Some may say you have to pay for your father's sins. I don't see that here. In fact, I see the opposite. You do not have to pay for your father's sins. God will do good towards them despite their father's sins. And much like in chapter 7, God lays out what he wants from them. He wants obedience from the heart. These are those commands that I read. Speak truth to his neighbor. Give judgment. The point is this. God wants his people to execute true justice. He wants them to speak truth. Even more, he wants their hearts. Note verse 17 carefully. It's about the heart. Let none of you think evil in your heart. God doesn't just want us to obey. He wants your heart. He wants men and women like David. He wants his people to join with him in his mission. He wants them to make their hands strong and build his house. He wants them to execute justice. Not just that. He wants them to want to do it. There's a our third heading. Our third heading now. It's going to be very similar to the previous heading, but I'm going to add a little, a little extra to it. Obey God for the sake of his glory among the nations. Former missionary, of course, I'm going to say it, but that's what the text says. Obey God for the sake of his glory among the nations. This will be from verse 18 to the, to the end of the chapter. A bit of context. At the beginning of chapter 7, a delegation was sent to inquire of the Lord whether the Israelites should continue holding their corporate fasts. And these fasts were designed so that Israelites would remember and mourn some aspect of God bringing judgment upon them. So, for instance, the fast in the fourth month commemorated the fall of the walls of Jerusalem. In the fifth month, it marked the date of the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. The seventh, they fasted, and it it marked Gedaliah's death. In the tenth month, marks when Nebuchadnezzar began his siege of Jerusalem. So all of these fasts were remembering something bad that happened to them. But now the people have returned from exile and the temple has started to be rebuilt again. And God, in some sense, has returned to Israel in another sense. He hasn't. So the people come up with a question. Should we keep fasting? And for a chapter and a half, God does not answer. Here we have our answer. Verse 18. The word of the Lord of hosts comes to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth month. The fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Fasts become feasts. That's Christianity. 
101, for the house of Judah, therefore love, truth, and peace. So the fast will be removed. The feast will begin. There will be a new age. We are not given, I know some of you may be wondering this, we're not given an exact date about when they should start feasting. But we know this, they must start feasting. It's a command. And a wonderful one at that. Genesis 12, changing gears for a moment. Abraham is told by God the following promise. I will make you, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. He also says this. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so now here we are in the book of Zechariah, many centuries later, and we have more detail about this blessing. Abraham's seed, his people, the people Israel, they will be a blessing. How? They will be a magnet for the nations to come worship the Lord. They will be prosperous and they will have a house in which they can meet God. And on top of all that, they will feast in the presence of the Lord. No other nation could boast of that. So what happens when a nation feasts in the presence of the temple of God? Other nations will come. They will hear about it. It's a promise. Verses 20. People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. So they're going to come. And to top it off is verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. You guys are feasting over there in the presence of God. Let us go with you. They're going to grab hold of their robes, ten from every nation. Symbolic, isn't it? Reminds us. Pentecost, this came to fruition already. At Pentecost, we read Peter's sermon. It's not just Jews represented at Pentecost. There's a remnant from all sorts of nations. And Peter gets up to speak after Christ had ascended to the Father. And Peter preaches to them. And tongues of fire come down. And all of these nations hear the gospel of Christ, the culmination of the Bible. And they hear it. In their own language. This is Zechariah 8. They were blessed. All of these people who grabbed the robe of a Jew, they did the right thing. They heard there was feasting and they went. And as they went, they were blessed. They feast with God. This is similar as we see in other books. Isaiah Similar language. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. So that is the culmination, really, of where we're headed in the Old Testament. 
It happens. What a wonderful summary. In conclusion, I will um, give one point. One point. There are a lot of truths given in this chapter and some history about what has happened and what will happen in the middle. There's some commands. Consider the commands that were given. Do not fear. It's repeated. It's repeated twice. Another command is repeated. Make your hands strong. God will bless them. And think about us. We were, I was driving recently through a part of Hampton Roads I'd never been. And I was driving through, and it was dilapidated. Houses are kind of falling down. It just kind of looks rough. And I'm just kind of low and like, all right, where's the church around here? How hard was it, or how hard would it be, to start a church in this area of town? And just as I'm driving through, and here I am a Christian, I go, ugh, that'd be tough. It'd be tough to build God's church in this part of Hampton Roads. Who would want to take on that task? Do you see the connection? I think the Israelites in Zechariah's day, they look around them. Their city walls are down. Their economy's broken. They're looking around. They're asking a question like, how are we going to be a blessing to the nations? This is why God asks them, is it too marvelous for me? So the question for you, believer, is it too marvelous for God to work in that rough part of town or whatever it is you have going in your life? Are you doubting him? Do you believe him? The God of the universe can do all things. He sent his son, Christ. And beyond all All of our imaginations, this Christ was the God man and he came and he actually took on flesh and this man died, but death could not hold him and he rose from the dead and all who believe on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God raised him from the dead. What can he not do among us? Let's close with that and pray to our Lord. Our Father, there are many ways that we could apply this word to our hearts. So not just in this last way in which I've applied the text, I pray for your people now, for myself as well. Help us now to consider your word and to apply it to our own hearts in perhaps in unexpected ways. By the power of the Holy Spirit, work among us. And I pray for anyone in here who may not yet believe upon Christ as Lord and Savior and God. I pray that you work among them. Save them. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing praises to our Lord.